agile is all about being iterative. And it is all about the goal for this is to help teams deliver value to customers faster and with fewer headaches. And I, I love this because it's very, very similar to military problems where because it's the interface between the technical, the complicated, and the human behavior, the chaotic, which results in this complexity where you've got you know, calculatable things and then all of these intangible human dynamics, because ultimately war is chaotic and it's about people and people's attitudes and behaviors. You have to learn by doing. But I also love the fact that you know, it's not the project manager who comes up with the plan. It's a whole group of system experts from different perspectives collaborating with a clear leader. Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. If you've not listened to this podcast before, this is a podcast all about comparing and contrasting military and business approaches to leaders and leadership, teams and teamwork, decision-making, culture, strategy, and all the things that make organisations tick. And Gareth, this is a special episode in the fact that I don't know we ever thought we'd get this for. How many episodes have we recorded and released, Gareth? This is our 10th episode. Everybody that's listened up until now, firstly, thank you for, for bearing with us and doing that. And we've now been live on the various podcast platforms for the past three weeks. And we've been really encouraged by the download numbers. Uh, and that's really pleasing because it means that we're not just talking to ourselves uh, every week. We have had lots of feedback and that's really, really gratefully received. Uh, and we're doing our best and learning as we go, really. Lots of really, really useful feedback that we're starting to implement things that we are already doing, things that we are planning to do when we get the time to sit and reflect uh, and do that. Uh, and then there's also things that we are very pleased to receive the feedback about, um, but we're probably not going to because we're kind of carving our own path a little bit. Um, I think with these things, there's a book actually um, called Creativity Inc. We read it. We're going to go back to this ongoing topic, have I read, but no, I haven't. Gareth, tell well, us about well, it. Well, whether it is by uh, a chap called Ed Catamull. He was really senior in Pixar, and he talks in the book about creativity not being a predefined thing. You're not trying to get to the end goal. You're trying to find your way through to, to create something, you know, art. Um, and I feel that that's kind of where we are. Well, I wouldn't go as far as art, but no, I think I think the point is, you know, we are avid podcast listeners of, of all sorts of podcasts. And I think there are some really professional ones, but the ones we most enjoy are the ones that are a little bit more organic, a little bit less scripted and the ones that, frankly, the passion shines through. And hopefully that's what you guys hear when you listen to us, which is we would... I think it's safe to say we would do this anyway if no one listened. We just wouldn't go to the effort of sticking a, a, a microphone in front of us. Yeah. So look, Gareth, it, it's as you say, um, some lovely feedback from from people we know, yeah, and we are making a difference. So I've had some feedback from a listener who was uh, or, or is uh, employed in a startup that is scaling up really, really quickly, and they, for about a month now, have been having a sort of conversation 
around what is their purpose, what are their missions, what is the values that they espouse as a company. This listener messaged me to say that they, they'd all been arguing about the definition rather than actually getting down to working out what they were. They listened to, epi- or she listened to episode two, I think it was, when we talked about values and purpose, got her team to all then listen to that episode. And within a week, they got their purpose, mission, values and goals all nailed down and had consensus. That is excellent. Gareth, I know there was a couple of things you wanted to talk about today. I'm keen a little bit later on to talk about Agile because I'm 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 sensitive to the fact we've we've had quite a few military topics recently. So I want to go product management nerd. I know you've got a couple of parish notices for us. As we talk about leadership a lot, you know, I'm sure we will continue to do so as we go forward. I just wanted to sort of nod to the quite brave decision of Jacinda Ardern, who a few weeks ago, and and by the time this episode airs, it will probably be sort of recent history, but has stepped down as Prime Minister of New Zealand. I think, firstly, I'm I'm incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? Impressed? Impressed, yeah, definitely, and inspired by the way that she led uh, New Zealand not just through the pandemic, but just generally. Uh, and also, I think the the fact that she's been brave enough to, to call it a day based on the fact that she doesn't think that she's got anything left in the tank to continue the job. And, and there's been some quite nasty comments um, within certain dark recesses of the internet pointing out that this is a failure or a weakness. Or, and I, I don't feel like that at all. And I really want to... Just really nod to the fact that I think it's incredibly inspirational that somebody in a position under that much pressure, not only to do the job, but also to you know create the legacy and all the other things that comes with political leadership, um, has has been brave enough to to recognise uh, and make the decision to. I think, and I down. think, I think there's. I mean, I absolutely agree about the bravery. The idea that a, a prime minister or someone in that level would say. Nothing left in the tank, I think, was the phrase that she used. But actually, I think there's even there's a couple more things to unpick from there. The the first one is bravery is somehow sort of this is going to sound really terrible, an emotion that gives you nothing. Oh, well done. You've been brave. But actually, I would go back to the fact that if you and, and I hope no one thinks I'm reaching for this, the mission of being the leader of a country Actually, never mind bravery. There was a statement that said, "For the for the best outcome for the country, there is going to need to be someone else is going to create a better outcome for me." So I yeah. think, if anything, maybe that's what her, uh, you know, that's what she should be remembered for is to say that even when she said, "I have nothing left," rather than say, "I've got nothing left," and watch it all sort of fall to pieces. And I think we have many examples of that. I think the fact that she then said, stop, we need to do something different. Yeah. The other thing which I think is we we certainly haven't talked about, and maybe there's a there's a conversation at some point, which is not to underestimate the stress that comes with leadership. Yeah. Now, and it, it would be, I think it would be appropriate to say something like, which I can only imagine leading a country, of course, is a not just a 24 hour a day job it's if you can extend that even i'm sure even in your dreams you're thinking about the things you're doing but i also think this is probably true at all levels of leadership which is stress is something you have to be really really careful about and going back to this point 
of being effective how do you manage stress how do you recognize it and in her case how do you do something about it so i know yeah. we, we 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 can talk about that another time but I, I like you i tip my hat and i think um history will actually be be kind to her in terms oh, undoubtedly, of yeah. a, a really excellent leader and and one who has now said someone else take take the baton rather than it all falling to pieces and and you know. Yeah. So I, I was having a chat with Colonel Joe Brown yesterday and we've recorded a couple of episodes that are coming up. As a look forward, I suppose, or a sneak peek, Joe Brown was a bomb disposal. But he made a comment, which you will hear in uh, the next couple of weeks, where he said one of his junior NCOs once said, you're the bravest operator I've ever worked with. And he said that because he wondered whether that was a sort of an indication that he at times been slightly reckless. Bravery is a loaded term. It's a really interesting yeah, I term. think so. I and think I so. think there is physical courage in the face of danger, which for those of us that have served in the military are, are kind of yeah, very familiar with uh, and something that gets talked about and, and creates a lot of anxiety and sort of embarrassment, I suppose. But then there's bravery and leadership. And I think this is a classic example of that. And I agree with you. I think history will be very kind to. Well, well, look, I think we've probably rattled on about that long enough. Um, what do you want to talk about today? We, we've said on a couple of occasions, the one thing you should do when starting a podcast is not do that with uh, a friend who has been in the military and has more interesting stories. So I know we've focused on a couple of what might be seen as more military topics. What I wanted to do was to throw some red meat. Um, I was going to say to the nerds out there, and I think that's unfair. I'll go alienated half hour. Uh, I, exactly, but but I, I wanted to throw some red meat out to to the product managers out there because I what I'm hoping is this topic that we're going to talk about, and I want to talk about agile product product management and Scrum. I'm hoping will be interesting for product managers, um, and there'll be something new rather than I mean I'm going to talk about what it is, but there'll be something new, and there'll be hopefully some perspectives. But the bit I'm interested in, and we've not, you know, some of these conversations we talk about in advance, some of them we don't. I'm looking to see whether Gareth's eyebrows raise as we talk about this and say, well, ha hang on a minute. This is something which um, we do in the military or we don't do. So I'm very, very interested in the cross. Well, like, I'm really interested in, in this as a, as a topic. And I know you say your stories are boring, but, you know, it's context driven uh, and you you're interested in what you don't know. And these are terms that get thrown out quite a lot. So we talk about agile, we talk about sprint, that's starting to creep into the language. It is. But I don't actually know what agile project management is. I just know that some of the terminology has become quite fashionable. And I suspect by people who also don't really know what it I, is. I think so. So there are a group of people who will say, I know exactly what this means and it's it's very clear and actually it is but i think there's more I, i'm going to start by this was something which i spotted so um in the the conversations that that gareth has with joe you'll be pleased to know you don't hear me prattling on and that's because uh, i was enjoying a few days in berlin with my family by the way a great great place to visit visit teufelsberg but different different conversation and as i was uh, just about to get on the plane i was looking at twitter and I am a huge fan of Al Murray um, that you might know as the pub landlord. But what you possibly don't know is that actually he's a history graduate and um, he runs a 
extraordinarily successful podcast uh, with a, a historian called James Holland and indeed a history festival. So avid follower of his work. We was, have ways of making you talk. We have ways of making you talk. I'm also an avid listener of and we recommend but obviously only once you've listened to this. Yes, and, and they talk about Mission Command, they talk about Alvatrag's tactics, so there's a there's a really interesting crossover. But the reason why I mention it, and I have to be very careful, I think the likelihood of Al listening to this is very, very low, but he tweeted um, an application for uh, a job, and he said, sending in my CV. And I'm going to make an assumption here, he did that in an ironic way. Uh, because the language that was used sounds like sort of fluff and nonsense. And, well, and well let's, let's read it and we'll... we'll let's read it out. And it says, and, and we do it all right here at Scrubbed Out Name of Company. It says, what you'll do, you'll own a complete delivery, a project delivery lifecycle, including setting up of scrum teams, performing various agile ceremonies. Ceremony sounds dodgy. That sounds bad. Stand up, sprint planning, backlog refinements, retrospectives, and handle scope creep facilitate adoption of agile working practices within the cloud infra and network teams and help define and embed standard methodology for the teams as they go undergo a transformation in the way they're working. And then finally, monitor project progress and provide daily weekly reports on achievements, work you're doing and resource utilization and handle the budget for deliveries and, and then it's cut off. Now I realize that that could sound like you know, the cliche is the worst BBC advert in terms of you don't know what that means. But actually, what's interesting is there's nothing odd about that at all. That is a very specific description of what literally hundreds, if not thousands of teams in the UK are doing right now and around the world. That is a description of agile and scrum methodology. So there's there's my cue up to get people to say, make that not sound stupid. So I understood each of the words i don't think i understood what it meant which uh, i think probably reinforces the 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 notion that agile is a project management skill rather than just a concept and it's something you have to be taught it is um and so the fact that this language is creeping into wider bits of project management wider bits of uh, organizations without the formal training is undermining it and, and, and it is but i think um, i mean when i sort of thought about this episode and what we talk about the first thing i wanted to do was um find a fabulous sort of cliche that links this which is uh did you know gareth and by the way someone's going to tell us this is wrong but there are 46 different words for snow in iceland why am i telling you this pointless fact apart from the fact i love these kinds of things actually you can use many words to describe the same thing and so
go. Agile is all about being iterative and it's an approach to both project management and software development. And it is all about the goal for this is to help teams deliver value to customers faster and with fewer headaches. And so I'm using language, which actually, if you go to something called the Agile Manifesto and you can just Google us, you'll find this. What's nice about it is it's focused on customer value. So it's not focused on making a project more efficient or extracting more you. It is about getting value to customers faster. And instead of betting everything on a really big bang launch, an agile team is designed to deliver work in small but consumable increments. And requirements, plans, and results are evaluated continuously. So teams have this natural mechanism for responding to change. Here's a, here's a better way of saying it. Look, Mr. Customer, we've done this. Oh, actually, I'm glad you've shown me that because it doesn't quite work like that. I, when I talked to you last week, I thought it. now you've shown me it's changed. So it's this iterative yeah. approach. And, and it's almost like a, um, a heat-seeking missile. It constantly adjusts to find the target. And that's this iterative approach. So waterfall, bad. Agile, good. And by the way, I'm pretty sure there's some people that made a lot of money both talking about why Waterfall was great and why now Agile is great. But anyway, now, this thing called Agile is a movement. Um, I was going to say bad things about the word movement, but there are a variety of ways you can implement this. So there are words like Kanban. And Kanban is really just a list and you pick the thing at the top and you go through the list um, or Scrum, which is what the majority of my experience has been in. So I, you look like you want to say something. So I'm going to let you go before well, I go yeah, into Scrum. That introduction is really useful. Uh, and I think I probably had a sense of the difference between Waterfall and Agile, but you very concisely and clearly articulated it. Uh, and, and all I did was think to some of the concepts we've already talked about on this podcast, but certainly um, a lot of the things that I deal with when looking at organisations and decision making. And the, the idea of, you know, a really planned out, highly detailed plan up front struck me as, um, and the challenges of trying to implement that when it meets reality strikes me as very, very similar to a thing that I might have mentioned on the podcast before called the Kinefin framework. You not, I would remember the Kinefin okay, framework. Awesome. So I, I think we can go into the Kinefin framework in more detail, probably at a, a later date. Kinefin, and I, I'm probably absolutely murdering the pronunciation, is a Welsh word for habitat but it is the name of a framework that was developed by a, a group of programmers, I think, at um, IBM in the late 90s around looking at how you classify problems. And they they sort of propose that there are four types of problems. Simple problems, which are problems that you immediately, as soon as you recognise you've got a problem, you also know what the solution is. So you just need to get on and fix it. Complicated problems, which are problems where you don't immediately know what the solution is when you identify that you have this problem and therefore you require perhaps a level of analysis and skill and specialist tools, access to information. But given enough analysis and, and all of that stuff, 
you'll work out what the solution is to the problem, and then you'll apply that solution and fix it. So a technical problem um, that requires diagnostic. And then there are complex problems, which are problems where even with enough analysis, you're never going to understand cause and effect before you see the effect. So, th- so you this... have to get involved with the problem and the approach to solving complex problems, and we've definitely talked about this before, is about probing that problem space. So this is, this is a, it's almost as if I paid you to segue into this. So the, the these processes are about definitely complex problems. Yeah. So I tell you what, though, um, I'm about to get all excitable about Scrum, one well, way to approach do. this, but let's take a quick break before we do that. And then we'll come back and talk about Scrum. I'll get a cup of tea and then very excitedly come back to hear all about Scrum. Okay, so you you can't see this, but you might be able to tell by the sound of my voice. I am very excited about this. I'm very excited because this is what I do. This is what my teams do. And this is not as easy as it sounds. There's all in there. But the bit that makes me most happy is there are so many of these methodologies and frameworks which are complex and beautiful and brilliant and expensive to learn often. And I love why Scrum was built. So let's go back again. Scrum is one of these these agile methodologies. And it was created by two gentlemen, Jeff Sutherland and Ken Schwaber. And I bet, again, someone's going to come tell me, well, actually, it was Ken. and then, But let's just go with that. Back in the 90s. And here's the reason why I love this. Gareth, why do you think they set up Scrum? Was it to probe the problem space? No. Oh. So I'm shouting. I shouldn't <laughs> shout in front of a microphone. It was because they kept screwing up. Right. It kept going wrong. And they were like, this is not good. When it keeps going wrong, we don't want it to go wrong. You know, this is our business. We want it. We've failed so many times at these methodologies. Let's get together and with a group of practitioners, figure out how we fix the things that we can regularly see. So what I love about Scrum is that actually it wasn't some theoretical plan. It was built by people who were fed up with it going wrong. I like that as a a reason for methodology. Scrum is, and this is true, a lightweight framework that's designed to help people uh, people, teams, and organizations generate value. And I'm lo- using words that you'll see through the um, through Agile and Scrum. So in other words, basically, it's about making software that does something useful. And it comes back to your point that you made through coming up with a solution to a complex problem. So it's important. These are complex problems. And it's all about how you can adapt as, as you build it. For example, if you learn something new about the problem or customers give feedback, as you are building, you can make a change. In a nutshell, Scrum requires an environment where there is a person called a product owner. They decide what work that needs to be done to solve the problem and puts it in a specific order, a one-to-n order. And they put that into what is called a a product backlog. What it ends up being is there is a list of stories. We'll talk about stories in a second. And they say, team, we're going to work on this story, then this story, then this story, then this story. And then at the end, when we've written all of those stories, when we've written software, we'll have this magical bit of software that will will solve the problem. Now, for them to do this, 
they need to, first of all, understand the problem. And this is every single one of these will seem blindingly obvious. And that's another thing that I really like about Scrum, where the, the moment you say it out loud, you say, oh, well, obviously I knew that. But as with all these things, something that's simple can be done poorly. So the first thing I said was understand the problem. And I really mean understand the problem. Too often in the software world, someone says, I want you to put a light above the door. Why would you want to put the light above the door? So I can see when I put my key in the door. And then you'll find the metaphorical answers. You go to the customer and say, I've put the light above the door so you can put the key in. The customer says, you're an idiot. Other side of the door. Oh, you didn't understand what the problem was. In fact, I'll go one step further. The really smart product owner says, what's your problem, Mr. Customer? Oh, well, when I get out of my car at night, the PIR is broken. And so I can't put my key in the... Oh, so we should we should fix the PIR light that's already there. So understanding the problem. And, and I think that's a topic we should come back to because there's the magic. Yeah. What's the problem? That sounds... Very much like when we've talked several times before about mission command, the idea of not telling people what to do, but telling people what to achieve. But I think... But it's the other way around. It is the other way around. Rather than being told by the owner, this is my intent, it's about the person implementing this, asking what that intent is. Well, I also think that this idea of understanding the problem, there's a lot there because it's very easy to say, I want you to assault this hill. And therefore, a bunch of people assault a hill. Well, why did you want them to assault the hill? Well, because there's an artillery position there. But what if the artillery position moved? You don't want them to assault the hill. So truly understanding the problem and communicating the problem is the first place that people trip over and is the one that seems most seems obvious, but people get wrong. So, so anyway. I'm going to drag this podcast back into the military zone. Have you watched SAS Rogue Heroes? I, I, yes, of course I've watched SAS Rogue Heroes. Brilliant bit of TV. Really enjoying watching that at the moment. I have no idea exactly which bits of it are dramatised and what's, what's real and what's not in terms of the dialogue. But there's a brilliant scene where Paddy Main, much to his chagrin, has been told he can't go and raid Italian and German airfields. He's got to train this group of French free army uh, soldiers. Uh, And so he gets them to do all these awful, difficult tasks in the desert. Um, And at one point he says, you've got to ask why. And the commander of this French unit says, well, we've been trained not to ask why, but just to get on and do the mission. And he says, no, you've got to ask why. Um, And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, Because when it goes wrong, which it inevitably will do, you can understand why you were asked to do it in the first place, and therefore you can still achieve the mission, but in a different way. Uh, And I was watching that the other day, and I had to pause the TV and sort of make a note to to, to remember to talk about it, it, because, you know, in a a very good dramatisation, they've explained mission command with a, a grumpy, drunk Irishman swearing in the desert in, in a way that, you know, I think we've tried to do in lots more words. And that feels to me exactly what you're talking about here. It is entirely right. And in the software world, I think this causes enormous problems because people think they understand the problem, spend months with expensive 
people and time, and then it doesn't actually solve the customer's problem you have to go again. So yeah. really important. Okay, I'm going to go back because we got oh, we got lots to get through here. So <laughs> we're, we're, remember, we were talking about the product owner. The product owner needs to understand the problem. Then the product owner brainstorms with their team with different skills. So there are software developers who write code. There are quality engineers who then test the code. There are user experience designers who, who design the how would, how would that manifest itself to customers and yep. how do we make it work? Is the button in a place where they'll find or not in a place? Then another role is to make sure that they test that with a customer. And we'll yep. talk about the iterations later. So you've, you've got this list of things that you need to do to solve the customer's problem. You prioritize it, which is not the first thing to do. You brainstorm with the team to come up with a solution. You test with the customer. And then you sit down with your team and say, okay, for this feature, how long will that take? So you, you prioritize and estimate the size of the things you want to do to provide the best value outcome in the most useful order. That 30 seconds of description of what a product owner does makes it sound very simple. There are many pitfalls. Yeah. That you can do that brilliantly. You can do that poorly. So, And I, I love this because it's very, very similar to military problems where because it's the interface and, and obviously with software, it's a very technical thing, but it's used by people for a purpose. And so it's that interface between the technical, the complicated and the human behavior, the chaotic, which results in this complexity, which is really, really similar to, uh, to military planning, where you've got you know, calculatable things, speed, distance, time, the range of a weapon, the ammunition consumption rates, whatever it is. And then all of these intangible human dynamics, because ultimately war is chaotic and it's about people and people's attitudes and behaviours. Uh, and so you need to have this iterative approach. You have to learn by doing. But I also love the fact that, you know, it's not the project manager who comes up with the plan. It's a whole group of systems experts from different perspectives collaborating with a clear leader who orchestrates that. Very similar to what we've talked about before in terms of a planning headquarters where you have the commander but ultimately, the plan is developed by the staff. I'm not a dogmatic person, and, and hopefully, in my work, I'm very thoughtful about how you adjust. But what I love about this is the simple principles and values. I think what this does is it explains what people who are good do anyway, and it, it sort of it, it creates a, a framework by which you can see how they're doing it. Yeah. It also provides a follow me sign that says, if you do these things, it will help you. Now, it is very important. This is maybe this is sort of jumping ahead a little bit. Um, you can you can follow Scrum precisely and come out with terrible answers. Yeah. So the process won't save you, but good people who can follow a process will do very well. So, okay, there's the product owner. We talked about figuring out what you've got to do and how to solve the problem. The next thing is these people together, the product manager, the developer, the quality engineer, they are described as a scrum team and they turn a selection of work into an increment of value during a sprint, very scrum language. What they really mean is they do some work from the backlog. Here's the things we're going to do in this order. Yeah. A sprint is a, um, a period of time. Typically in our world, it's two weeks. So it's pretty short. It's long enough to get going and get something done, 
but short enough that you're not going to spend months and months going down the wrong road. Yeah. Stories are written. So what that means is each one of these items um, has a story written. So, you know, the the light example I gave earlier, the story, it goes something like this. Stories typically go something like this as a I want so that. So as a person coming home late from the pub one night, I want the PIR light to come on when I get out of my car. So when I'm half drunk, I can put the key and lock and get into the house. Notice what we've done there. We've 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 not been explicit about how that must be engineered. That's for engineers to figure out. Yeah. But what we've captured in there, hopefully eloquently and clearly, is the problem we are trying to solve and the value that solving that problem brings. And so that's and imagine that there are many of these. There are possibly tens, if not hundreds, on a large project. And and again, in the military planning world, we use scenarios and courses of action as stories to talk about and bring the plan to life so that not only do you get across that intent rather than the technical detail but also because it's memorable and and it taps into people's emotional story storytelling is really important and i've seen this in many organizations where if you give people a thing to do because we want you to do it make a building block and put it in the middle of a room okay If you say put a building block in the middle of the room so a doctor has a place to put the thermometer, bad example, people care. So there's storytelling in there as well. There's a lot of storytelling in there. In fact, you can see there's this beautiful scaffolding and brilliant people can add to that scaffolding. And you can say you can write a story and be the dullest person in the world. But actually, if you have a compelling narrative, if you can fit it into a context, if you can provide purpose to it all of a sudden people get more excited about it one thing i wanted to say about those stories there's within those stories we have these things called acceptance criteria what must it successfully do to solve the problem we will test that it achieved the goal so for example um in my my terrible lights example um we're going to test that i can get out of a car and when i walk up to the door the light goes on, but it might be that someone that the test engineer says, well, what if you parked your car on the street and you had to come around the side of the building? Does the light come at the same time? So it's this it's this discussion and interaction. Another way to look at this is a lot of it is about asking the right questions to yeah. get the interesting answers. Out. Product owners figured out the work that needs to be done in conjunction with the team and come up with a prioritized list. The team has turned that into work that is worked on within an increment. And they do that typically through stories. By the way, stories, this is a really interesting one. Stories should be small enough so you can complete them in each sprint. I see this all the time where people say, oh, I've written a story that's going to last five sprints. Too big. You haven't broken it down to the smallest and simplest things. And all of a sudden you get massive scope. And then at the end, at the end of those two weeks, the scrum team and its stakeholders inspect the results and adjust for the next sprint. So that's really important. Did we achieve what we wanted? Did it work? Did the technical solution work? Does the customer like it? Does it actually get us further forward? Has the problem changed since we last looked at it? But inspect and adapt is a really critical part of things. And this is, if you wanted me to be overly simplistic, 
what's one of the really, really big differences and improvements over waterfall was waterfall was start 12 months later, finish, yeah. cross your fingers and say, it's all good. We're saying, no, no, every two weeks, we're going to go and check. Not just did we solve the problem, but how long do we think it's going to take to solve the problem? Do we have the right resources? Did we miss something? So super valuable. And then at the end, you do a demo. You show people, yeah. you show your team, you show other stakeholders, what did we do? Which again is really valuable. Are we in an echo chamber? Did we build something that was valuable? Does marketing need to know about it? And you, this is the this is the last one, and I'm, I'll I'll tell a story in a minute. And this is this is very bad because if ever I interview someone now who's listened to this, they're going to know the right answer. To this, but the next thing you do, and many of these are what we call ceremonies. So there's sprint planning, which is a ceremony. That's what are we going to do in the sprint, mm. and who's going to do the work, and how big it is. Another one of these ceremonies is what they call a retro retrospective. Effectively, it is the team coming together and saying, what could we do differently to make us more effective as a team? Yeah. Were there any external factors that we should go away and see if we can fix? Were there any internal factors? So retro. And then you plan for the next sprint. Yeah. And then you repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. Now, I'm going to talk about the retro for a second because I think it, it's this it's this really good example of you can do scrum well and still fail. Yeah. When typically I interview for product managers or product owners, one of the questions I will ask, I'm, I'm always kicking myself for revealing this is what, if you were king for a day or queen, which scrum ceremony would you get rid of? Now, the answer I'm generally interested in is someone who says, oh, let me think about that, because I would like to think each and every one of these things literally came from someone getting something wrong. Yeah. Like, you know, we. we so there is no right answer. There is, there is no right answer. It's the process. The, the ones program. that I'm most interested in is people who are desperate to tell me the ceremony they want to kill. And actually, the one that most people, on average, the, the people who decide they want to kill something is retrospectives. Yeah. There's this really weird thing of, oh, it's really boring. Nobody talks. It's a waste of our time. When the answer is, if that's the case, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Because actually, there is huge value in going back and saying, come on, guys, I want to go and see the wife tonight and the yeah. kids. What could we do better next time that would help us? Yeah. So. Really, really interesting. Each and every one of those ceremonies and activities has a very specific role in a very specific place. And, and again, massive parallels to the way that the military operates. So um, two two huge points there. One was, uh, I think you called them the, the success criteria. Yep. The overall concept of planning is what we call effects-based planning. So you don't plan around what you're going to do you plan about what you're going to achieve and we, we've talked about that before but that is laid out by the commander saying i want this effect on this target audience or on this weapon system or on this piece of ground or whatever it is and the the answer to that is then we're going to complete this action or activity in order to achieve that effect now that's of course an assumption that your action is going to have the effect um and so the first thing we want to do is measure the performance did we do what we said we were going to do? And then we want to measure the effect. Did what we did have the effect we thought it was going to have? Now, measuring performance is quite often sort of shining a spotlight on your internal processes. Did, did people do what they were told? Are we efficient? You know, 
either our maintenance up to scratch so that our equipment works. Measuring effect, yeah, you're you're often dependent on all these external factors like luck, the weather, the enemy, the incomplete intelligence that you're working to. And so what we try to do in, in military decision making, and this is what I try to get in embedded in the cultures of the organizations I support now as a consultant, is this idea of being honest about you not achieving that effect doesn't reflect badly on the people that inspect and adapt and, and and trust within a team as well. And of course, so so I think the success criteria and breaking it down by sprint is the same way we break down each strategic objective into individual missions, into individual effects we need to achieve to tactics and yeah, all that good stuff. Really interestingly, it's the importance of your retrospective and what we call an after-action review. Yeah. And whether it's my team, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, clearing through a ship and there's a team of eight of us doing very small team tactics, or whether it's a brigade embarking on a, a six-month operation, everybody at every unit, at every level of command, goes through after-action reviews for the things that they've done. And you can learn so much about what happened, what you could have done better, but also how people behaved, how they felt, how they understood the orders they were given, where those miscommunications were. And and teams that do this and spend time doing it, get that shared consciousness that I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. So that the next time you go through it, you're so much more efficient at communicating the stories, at explaining what you want the teams to achieve, but equally, they are so much better at explaining the limits of what they are going to be able to do, the potential flaws in the plan, and it just builds that mutual trust on top of just making you more efficient at what you do. So there's 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 lots of things in there. And, and for those people who are product owners or product managers, they'll be sort of rolling their eyes and saying, well, thank you for describing what we do, Chris. There's nothing new in it. I do want to go on to the next level and talk about some things that go wrong. But before I do that, this was one of my points earlier, which is what I love about the simplicity of Scrum is that it's all blindingly obvious. Yeah. Actually, many organizations do some of all of these things and that the principles are highly applicable and transferable, whether you take Scrum as it in its entirety or take bits of it. And by the way, we're seeing more and more. So this is a very software development thing. So going back to the, the, the Al Murray thing, that was an advert for a product owner. That yeah. literally was an advert for a product owner. Um, but we're seeing um, marketing teams doing this as well. And so that, that, that that's fine. Um, I, I want to, to to sort of now go for the next level because the, the challenge is, as with all of these things, and this is a re- repeated theme across all of our episodes, which is you can read the book yeah. and you can still do poorly. Yes. And so you, you need to go beyond and you need to understand. In fact, one of the things that I've often said to people, and I may be wrong on this, people could certainly argue with this, is lots of people talk about we do scrum but. And Scrum Butt is not some uh, officially sanctioned sub version of Scrum. What they really mean is we do Scrum, 
but we don't do this. We so don't do the bits we, we don't want to do. Exactly. And so, yeah. by the way, the moment someone says to you, we do scrum, but you immediately know there's a whole bunch of conversations about, well, let's talk about which bits you do, which bits you don't, and why you don't do them. And by the way, scrum is a very cultural thing as well. We, we can maybe talk about it later. But anyway, so a really key point is like all frameworks, doing scrum won't save you. But if you have the right people with the right skills, Scrum will help. So now let's go. Mm. And there are lots of people. This is the bit where I'm going to get in a little bit of trouble. There'll be people throwing things at the whatever device you're using. So this is a term that is used a lot in Scrum. And we have touched on this many times. And that is a Scrum team is a self-organizing team. So if I said to you, this is actually probably quite a good thing to do. What do you think a self-organizing team means? And I'm 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 hoping I'm going to get a gotcha in there, even though you're going to give a very competent answer. Oh, almost certainly. Um, I would say a self-organizing team is that where people normalize and find their own roles within the team. So it's not it's not quite that, but we'll we'll sort of pull that to pieces. A scrum team actually has pretty clear roles and responsibilities in general terms. There are developers, there's the product owner, there's the testers. Now, so self-organizing teams is about the fact that scrum gives a framework and says within that framework, the teams should figure out how they want to organize themselves to be successful. And as you've heard me say multiple times, I think that's fantastic. It's another way of saying it is the team should be empowered to organize themselves to create the best outcome. So when you say organize, are you talking about things like the amount of hours they work, how they communicate? It could be almost any of where those they things. work from, those you know, kind it, of things. It, it could be. It could literally be any of those. I mean, it is a very high-level principle. The term self-organizing team is not self-organize for the benefit of the team. It is self-organize for the benefit of delivering the most valuable software and the most valuable outcome for the organization. I will give you a really, really simple example, which, and by the way, this is, I'm gonna say it as if it's sort of definitive and simple. It is actually a nuanced and sensitive conversation. Imagine you have five teams and three of them decide they want to do estimating and sizing of work in one way. And two teams say, no, we're self-organizing. We don't want to do it that way. We want to do it another way. And you would say, in principle, self-organizing means that's absolutely fine. Yeah, but the problem is, as a business, we need to be able to predict when we're going to release software. And if all of a sudden I've got apples on one side and oranges on another, yeah. I am now unable to do that. So actually, I think this topic of self-organizing teams needs a bit more, bit more nuanced, which is it is not simply for the purpose of the team to be successful. It is for the purpose of the team being more successful within the constraints and the goals of the entire organization. Yeah, of course. And that, and that makes sense. And that we've talked before about the, the idea of leaders bringing coherence to a wide range of individuals or individual groups. And that's part of the role of command, isn't it? It's to not only empower people to make decisions, but also be very, very clear on the restraints and constraints. So there's, there's one other thing I want to talk about, and that is... In our software yeah. world, yeah. how long will it take you to build the software? Because it's really important for a business to be predictable, to be able to say to customers, to be able to build plans around it, to communicate to marketing. So estimating 
the act of saying these five stories that you have identified will yeah. take this long is very important. It is also the single most difficult thing in any organization. Yeah. And so what I have found in the experience is there are some organizations where estimating is a dirty word because typically these are organizations that have not been super successful because what it means is you said you were going to get it done in two weeks. Why haven't you got it done in two weeks? So people get very nervous about estimating, by the way, product as well as engineers. Everyone gets very nervous. In the military world, there is exactly the same tension. And you see it when we talk about... I couldn't possibly tell you. <laughs> measurement of effect, people kind of say, oh, well, you can't measure effect, so let's not bother. Ah, and, and of course... There was, more... there was the magical bit, which is you can't measure so let's not bother yeah another way of saying it is it is very hard to measure and sometimes we will be wrong so let's do the best job we can inspecting and adapting along the way to give you the best answer we can give and that point about yeah. let's not bother you have just described again this is too general so many times people say, in fact, I know things are, are, are bad around that when someone says software development is an art. Yes. Thank you for that. I realize it's creativity. But what you're trying to tell me is you would rather not tell me how long this would take. Absolutely. And because you're estimating a complex problem, not a complicated problem, you're dealing with estimating external factors which in the military world we would call intelligence because it's information about the enemy, about the ground, about stuff that you've got to go and find out using reconnaissance and surveillance capabilities. And, and there's this really interesting cultural sort of schism between operators and the operations world and the intelligence world. And where you see it go really badly wrong is where they diverge and operators who are making decisions about how long things are going to take, about what they're going to do, what effects they want to have, ignore the intelligence world because, because that's all made up. It can't be accurate. It's sometimes wrong. And, and what you end up with is this really dangerous world of, I'm going to ignore the advice because it's sometimes not right, and I'm just going to go with my gut instinct. Well, I'm 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 going to push on this. In your in your example, you said, ah, oh, you know, people. If only they listen to intelligence, that are better estimates is effectively what you're saying. Well, the, yeah, but go the other way as well. Exactly. This the, is my the intelligence staff are quite often like you're being rash because we don't exactly. know enough yet. Well, so now you and get it's the balance. It's really the balance. Important. Well, people start to say, and I'm, I know you're going to smile when I say this. Oh, you want to know how long something takes. Well, then we need more information. We yeah. can only make a good decision. And in, in, the, in the software development world, it starts to smell like waterfall. You need to write all the stories. Yeah. And only then can we give you an estimate. This, even with really high performing teams, this concept of estimating and sizing continues to be problematic. So I'm going to turn this around and rather than, because I've done a lot of the talking here, you are asked to assault a, a position and someone says how long do you need what what do you think about when you as a military person try to come up with an estimate how do you make a good estimate given that it's going to be you 
and let's say 30 other people rather than just you? What do yeah. you do? Uh, and of course, what you're doing is going up against something that you don't know everything exactly. about. Exactly. You don't yeah. know everything about it. Absolutely. So you look at the things you do know. Absolutely. You look at the uh, the amount of capability you have, the weapon systems, the, the level of experience and training of the, the people you've got, the equipment you've got. You look at the plan. You look at what you think you know yep. about the enemy position, about their defences. You would probably do some reconnaissance if time allows. And so you would try uh, and understand a little bit more detail about the things that are really important to making that assessment, asking the right questions, because you you don't have long. You're not going to know everything. You can't be omnipotent. And I think this goes to your point about you the waterfall model writing the whole thing. So you've got to know in that short window of time what is good enough. But basically, you're going to go with what is a similar situation that we've done before? How long did that take? And what's different about this one? And this is something which in the software world, it's really difficult because people say, you know, I'm going to get in trouble if I'm not right. So I'm going to say it's going to take an extra two weeks. OK, I, I don't want you to tell me extra two weeks. I literally yeah. want you to tell me how long you'll think. You have to build trust to people so they feel that actually telling you what they think is right. Because otherwise you get into this really ridiculous cycle of sandbagging. And by the way, anyone who's listening to this and says, yeah, yeah, I do that. Whatever my boss says to me or whatever the product owner says to me, I add two weeks onto it because that's great. By the way, the product owner is de-sandbagging you because he says, oh, well, that person always adds two weeks onto it. So I'm going to take two weeks off. And all of a sudden you've lost track. It's tied into these concepts of success and failure yeah. when Actually, when I say to an engineer, how long will this take? The last thing on my mind is whether you're going to be successful or fail. I just need to know and I need you to feel confident. Yes. I can ask you questions. I can tell you what I think. And with regular inspection and adaptation, I can tell you what we're going to do and how we're doing Get it. I think it is the ultimate accountability. Yeah. When you ask me to do something, I I. Doing something is easy. You know, I turn up and I do something. The statement that says this thing will take two weeks, all of a sudden, it changes everything. Yeah. Before I was relaxed, I would do it. That's great. The moment I say, how long is it going to take? It is literally, you have to be accountable and write your name against this. And that's what makes people uncomfortable. I think there is a leadership trick there, which says, how do you get people to accept the accountability because that is important but in a weird way manage to spend that accountability to give a good answer to give the right answer not a good answer actually that's what i'm trying to avoid because people try to give good answers you say you've only got two months we can do it in two months i don't want that answer yeah. i want the truth and that's sometimes very hard to get to so when i talk about command i talk about the balance of authority, accountability, and responsibility. And I think this is really important because you're right, this is about accountability for the estimate, for the delivery of the yeah. piece of information, without the responsibility of, if that doesn't happen, you're going to be punished Correct. or blamed or judged. And that tension between the operations world and the intelligence world in military planning 
the way we get around that is, is twofold. Firstly, we ask for three things in a piece of intelligence. How confident are you that you know what is happening and what's your assessment of what's going to happen? The second thing is to make sure that people are held to account for doing their job, but they're not held to account for giving bad news. It's so interesting that something as far away from you know, combat operations like development of software is so close when it comes to these cultural challenges. When I was involved in running operations, one of the ways we tried to get around this problem, and I think you, you're entirely right, the framework of the process doesn't always solve the problem. Bad people, bad teams will still fuck it up. Yeah, yeah completely. If, even if they follow a process. But one of the ways you can get around this is to create empathy between the two groups. So one of the things we would do is we would put analysts. So these are people that are highly specialised in intelligence analysis, in technical techniques, whatever it is, with operators who are highly trained people at delivery of effects, kicking doors in abseiling out helicopters next to each other and say analyst i'm taking you out of your comfort zone you're jumping on the helicopter with with the operators operator and we'd often take the best operators the best soldiers and say you're no longer going to be leading the team on the mission you're going to be sitting with the analysts to see what they do and to be the, the interlocutor that can hawk the operator's language and very very quickly what you end up with is people going oh Oh, I see why you're asking that question you, now. You've, you've, yeah, I get it. Ah, you, you're asking these questions because you're making these decisions. And vice versa, you get the operators going, oh, I see quite how difficult your job is. I get it now. I'm going to it, give you more. You flex. are so right. So, so, and it, it goes, guess this is my cop out in every episode. It turns out it's like a recipe. You need the right culture. You need the right people. You need trust. You need context. It's all these intangibles yeah. which actually contribute. And I think you're absolutely right. So, for example, how many engineers actually someone has sat down and said, here's how the business works. Here's why it's important that we have an understanding when we're going to deliver things. Yeah. Because for many engineers that I've spoken to, what they see is I give them a number and either I'm wrong and they shout or I'm right and they're happy. Yeah. Well, that that's not the context. I'm not asking for a date because I want to hold a gun to your head and say, if you don't make that date, there's a problem. I want a date because these 20 other things have to be planned and have to happen at the same time. So framework is easy. Go Google Scrum and Agile Manifesto and you'll find all of this stuff written out far better than I've explained it. But again, it's how do you make this work? Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Chris for educating me on the world of Agile. We hope that you have also learned something and enjoyed yet another episode of Battling With Business. Please do like and subscribe. If you do like it, tell your friends about it. Do join us on Twitter. Fire in your questions. Sorry, did we actually really say in a serious voice, like and subscribe? I do. like a YouTube channel. I do feel like that now. But we've got to. We've got to get the numbers up. We've got to get the algorithms to work. So yeah, please do engage with us. Ask questions. Tell us your story. But for now, though, uh, that's it from me. So thank you very much. And that's it from me as well. Thanks for listening. It's so interesting that something as far away from you know combat operations 
like development of software is so close when it comes to these cultural challenges. When I was involved in running operations, one of the ways we tried to get around this problem, and I think you, you're entirely right, the framework of the process doesn't always solve the problem. Bad people, bad teams will still fuck it up. Yeah, yeah completely. If, even if they follow a process. But one of the ways you can get around this is to create empathy between the two groups. So one of the things we would do is we would put analysts. So these are people that are highly specialised in intelligence analysis, in technical technique, whatever it is, with operators who are highly trained people at delivery of effects, kicking doors in abseiling out helicopters next to each other and say analyst i'm taking you out of your comfort zone you're jumping on the helicopter with with the operators operator and we'd often take the best operators the best soldiers and say you're no longer going to be leading the team on the mission you're going to be sitting with the analysts to see what they do and to be the, the interlocutor that can hawk the operator's language and very very quickly what you end up with is people going oh Oh, I see why you're asking that question you, now. You've, you've, yeah, I get it. Ah, you, you're asking these questions because you're making these decisions. And vice versa, you get the operators going, oh, I see quite how difficult your job is. I get it now. I'm going it, to give you more. You flex. are so right. So, so, And it, it goes, guess this is my cop out in every episode. It turns out it's like a recipe. You need the right culture. You need the right people. You need trust. You need context. It's all these intangibles which actually contribute. And I think you're absolutely right. So, for example, how many engineers actually someone has sat down and said, here's how the business works. Here's why it's important that we have an understanding when we're going to deliver things. Because for many engineers that I've spoken to, what they see is I give them a number and either I'm wrong and they shout or I'm right and they're happy. Yeah. Well, that that's not the context. I'm not asking for a date because I want to hold a gun to your head and say, if you don't make that date, there's a problem. I want a date because these 20 other things have to be planned and have to happen at the same time. So framework is easy. Go Google Scrum and Agile Manifesto and you'll find all of this stuff written out far better than I've explained it. But again, it's how do you make this work? Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Chris for educating me on the world of Agile. We hope that you have also learned something and enjoyed yet another episode of Battling With Business. Please do like and subscribe. If you do like it, tell your friends about it. Do join us on Twitter. Fire in your questions. Sorry, did we actually really say in a serious voice, like and subscribe? I did. like a YouTube channel. I do feel like that now. But we've got to. We've got to get the numbers up. We've got to get the algorithms to work. So yeah, please do engage with us. Ask questions. Tell us your story. But for now, though, uh, that's it from me. So thank you very much. And that's it from me as well. Thanks for listening.